0: Our podcast sponsor today is strategytraining.com. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, you can get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It's a free download and you can go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. That's firmsconsulting with an scom dot forward slash overall approach. And if you are looking to advance your career and need to update your resume, you can get a McKinsey and BCG winning resume template as a free download at www.FirmsConsulting.com forward slash resume PDF. That's www.FirmsConsulting.com forward slash resume PDF. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I'm actually thankful to you because your book, look, when I was reading it, was given to me by one of the people in the business. I thought you hit on something that I've been trying to educate business leaders about. And I'll give you an example of this, and then we'll get into your you know, great writing and the premise of the book and so on. So I was speaking to these pharmaceutical executives. They were telling me they want to recreate the success they had with Viagra, which is the brand name pull they created. And they were talking through all the things they were doing to, to create a new class of drugs that learns the lessons on the creation of Viagra. And I pointed out to them that Viagra was actually created by chance. They were about to shut down the entire program because they were not getting the results they wanted to treat, I think, heart problems. And they ran one final trial in Wales, in a Welsh mining town. And on the final day of the final trial, they went through all the questions. They could see they weren't getting the results they wanted. And they asked the people in the trial, the miners, did you notice any other side effects? And one man put up his hand and said, well, this happened to me at night because I took the pull. And, and what I'm trying to point out to many executives is there's a lot of chance and luck that drives our decisions. And your book basically explains the science of that. So for the audience, maybe talk us through the central premise of the book, as you see it.
1: Yeah, so that's that's a great uh, gateway into the into the conversation. I'll come back to that example in a second. the The overwhelming idea behind the book is that the world is swayed by chance, randomness, contingency, and chaos theory. Far more than we think it is. Yes. And the reason that we often pretend otherwise is because we get the world projected back at us through a series of models that are not reality, but are very, very crude representations of reality. And the reason that matters for people who are trying to make decisions or understand their place in the world or whatever it is, is because we have a false sense of certainty. And that full yeah. sense of certainty comes from a worldview in which, you know, chance and randomness and contingencies are basically written out of the model, right? Because like when X causes Y, the other stuff is considered to be noise and, yes. and the noise is discarded. And, and my argument is the noise is very important. Now, w- with the example you gave, I think there's there's a lot of things to think about there. I mean, in addition to the fact that there's the accidental effect, right, yes. um, That that's an important point because... One of the things that happens the more that you have certainty, a false sense of certainty over the world, is you don't ask the question in the first place, right? So it's really Mm -hmm. good that they ask the question, you know, was there anything else? Because very often um, when we try to develop a drug or when we try to solve a problem, we have a very closed set of possible outcomes in mind and we just ignore the alternatives. And and so this is a rare instance where they actually had an open-ended question that yielded um, profound results. The other thing that I would say is that the more that you believe in certainty, the less that you experiment. And so, you know, one of the things that happens in, you know, whether it's clinical trials, drug research, or business in general is, you know, the, the sort of hubris you have towards believing you understand and can control the world causes you to reduce experimentation. And that's why I think for business leaders... The ideas in this book are so important because they say, "Look, you know, sometimes it's important to remember the model is not reality. The world is really messy, yes. and therefore, because we don't understand the world and we can't tame it, uh, we actually do need to experiment more, build resilience more into our systems, and optimize a little bit less." So, those are sort of the main themes that 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 I think we'll talk about today.
0: Well, the term I use when I talk with executives is serendipity. You've got to create moments of randomness to occur; otherwise, you don't know what could occur. I remember speaking to another executive who was telling me they want to recreate the success of Apple and were talking about how the iPod was created. And I pointed out to them that the way the iPod was created is that Steve Jobs and his team, I think it was Fidel and company, they had created the workings of the iPod, but they didn't have a thumb drive that could power it. And then when Steve Jobs went for his annual trip to meet suppliers in Japan, there was a scientist from Toshiba we didn't know Apple was looking for a thumb drive and had a thumb drive that nobody wanted to buy, decided to show it to Steve Jobs. And he thought, wow, this solves all my problems. So there's so many things that we cannot predict, we cannot control. So how would an executive on Monday morning, 8 a.m. put maybe the central idea into practice?
1: yeah, so i'll 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 get to that answer because one of the things that you you said made me think of the sort of experimentation aspect. I just wanted mm-hmm. to to relay briefly a, a quick story that I cover in fluke. and it's it's a story about um, you know, one of the best jazz pianists of all time, this man, Keith Jarrett, who yes. arrives at the Cologne Opera House for a performance in nineteen seventy five. And the piano he's requested, which is, you know, specified exactly, right? It needs to be exactly this piano and exactly tuned this way, et cetera. They've mixed up and they didn't really order it. <laughs> and so unexpectedly, he's about to perform to this massive audience. And all they have is this rickety, crappy old piano that's used for practice. Yes. And and Jarrett performed on it. And what happened was because it was a new kind of instrument, he adapted himself. He played a little bit differently. The sound changed slightly. This is the best-selling jazz album in history. Really? And, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's because, you know, it, it's because of the unexpected. So the lesson here, this, this gets to your question. The lesson is that experimentation in a world of uncertainty is the thing that, that drives us forward. And optimization with a false sense of certainty is the thing that creates catastrophe. So as i say you know if you believe the world is fully controllable then you're going to try to control it to the optimal max right if you understand yes. a system perfectly then it's completely rational to optimize for every ounce of possible efficiency but we we don't understand our world we we don't understand exactly why things happen all the time sometimes magic happens sometimes it doesn't and so i think there's a few lessons that i would suggest one is that you would try to identify the areas of your business that you most understand and those that you least understand. And I'd experiment most in the ones that you don't understand as much, yes. and a little bit less in the ones you think you have a very good grasp on. The second thing I'd say is to force experimentation. Um, and this is the, the the story in Fluke right after the Keith Jarrett piano one is, is a story. There's some wonderful research by some economists where they looked at the effects of a, a tube strike in London, the, the London Underground. Uh, And the subway system that's used for, you know, millions of people to get to work every day, all of a sudden shuts down. And they just tracked cell phone data, uh, you know, just sort of anonymized cell phone data about movement patterns. And what they found after the strike was that actually like 5% of people stuck with the alternate route that they were forced into by the strike because they either preferred it or it was more efficient, right? Now, they thought, you know, these people probably commuted in the same way for years. And they thought they had figured out the answer because it worked, but then when they were forced to experiment uh, in the, in that situation by something that was not seemingly you know a huge disruption and not optimal for them, they actually found a better solution. So, you know, for for business leaders, I think there's there's lots of different takeaways. I think some of the stuff I talk about forecasting, perhaps we can come back to that as well. But but the the big idea here, the central idea, is that if you accept that randomness, chance, and contingency matter more than you think they do, and I, that's the point of the book. Um, then you should have less hubris, more experimentation, and a prioritization of resilience over optimization to squeeze every last last ounce of efficiency out of a, a system that you can't control.
0: When you talk about optimization in, in the world of strategy consulting and management consulting, what comes to me is this big focus on benchmarking, where everyone tries to see who the best is and tries to be like them. What I always point out to executives is that if you are only as good as everyone else, it's not going to set you apart. You have to do something different. The whole point of strategy is to be different, not to be the same as everyone else. And it seems that's the similar concept and point you're making. Is, is that a good rephrasing of it?
1: Yes, it is. And I think you know, the, the point that you're making is also an important one for another reason, which is that trying to replicate success is only good if you assume that the conditions that produce that success are exactly the same as the conditions you face. And that's almost well, that never very true. true. Yes. Right. So like, you know, how, how did Apple develop itself as a company that cornered the market? Well, I mean, I don't know. Would Apple corner the market today? Maybe. There are some things that Apple does ex- exceptionally well, but it was also at the right place at the right time. There was a vulnerability in the market. Nobody had produced a sort of visual desktop in the same way that was extremely usable. So, you know, th- there's there's lots of this kind of stuff. And the point that I make in in, in my research around, you know, leadership, for example, because it's one of the other things I study that's, that's less fo- focused about in Fluke. Um, is this idea of sort of only auditing failures, right? And so like we have, this, we have this hindsight bias where if something turns out really well in business or politics or society writ large, we try to recreate the conditions that produced that, that yes. it. And we never try to think, like, was this because of chance or randomness or anything like that that that, that caused this? Um, you know, one example of this in politics is, you know, JFK is was, was widely believed to be a good president, a good leader before he was assassinated. But the Cuban Missile Crisis was on a hair trigger away from blowing up. You know, a significant chunk of the United States and possibly triggering World War III. And a lot of the reason why that didn't happen was luck. I mean, a, a few decisions in, in key moments gone differently. There could have been uh, a nuclear war. Would we have said JFK was a great leader if he's the leader who ushered in nuclear war? No, of course not, right? So yes. th- there's, there's a certain level of contingency on how events that are swayed by chance turn out. The other one that I like to talk about is the Challenger explosion, the which which blew up uh, you know, in 1986. And when they, they finally did an audit after you know, a sort of investigation, of course, after yes. the shuttle blew up, and what they found was that all of the previous launches had had the same exact problems, but it hadn't resulted in an explosion, so they assumed it was fine, right? In other words, they didn't audit their successes. And and that's the kind of thinking that's really problematic in business is you figure if the outcome is good, therefore the decision-making and the strategy was good. And that's not true. There's a lot of people who make really smart business decisions who get unlucky. And then the lesson that's learned from them is don't do that thing. And it's it's a mistake because sometimes they made a very smart decision, a very astute decision, and it turned out badly. So you know what I tend to say is think about... A, whether the conditions that created success in the instance you're modeling your own behavior after is actually replicable. Are you in the same situation they were in? Rarely true. And two, the the second thing is, you know, try to figure out whether you think that the actual decision-making logic and the decisions they made at the time were wise, or if they just ended up having good outcomes. Because a lot of times what we do is we infer backwards from history. Good outcome equals good strategy. That's not true. So th- those would be sort of my takes on on, on on that dynamic, but I think it's very much related to what I was talking about with optimization, yes.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, I wonder if it's partly due to our culture whereby we live in a society where we like to bring forward heroes to portray them in magazines and so on. So I wonder if it forces business leaders where when they know they weren't fully responsible for a decision success or successful outcome... They still dress it up as something where they planned it carefully. They thought about it carefully. And it's because of this careful planning that it led to their success. Do you think culture plays some role in this?
1: Yeah, but I also yeah I, I do I definitely think that's that's certainly part of it. Like we need to have idols and heroes and 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 to try to explain the sort of ingenuity of human decision yes. making during crises. That's certainly a human impulse. It's it's part of what I talk about in the book, which is uh, narrative bias and the ways in which our yes. our mm-hmm. minds are pathologically driven to patterns, uh, even if randomness is is reigning supreme in a given instance. Right? There's there's loads of studies about this. There's so many, so many instances where you take um, a a pattern and infer cause and effect. And like one example I point to in the book is just a short story that I cite. uh, Very, very short. It's six words. It says a hunter, sorry, it says a tiger, a hunter, a tiger. (laughs) And the thing is like what most people do is they have a sort of image of what happens, right? The tiger arrives, then the hunter arrives, then the tiger's there and the hunter's not. And they they sort of stitch together this this narrative image of you know the tiger mauling the hunter, eating yes. the hunter, whatever it is. But like all those are, are six words. There's no narrative built into them. And our brains automatically do that. And I think this is where when it comes to assessing leadership and so on, we want to tell stories about success and failure. And the world's not so neat and tidy. I mean, I think one of the things that I I, I just believe to my core is that the noise of life is not meaningless. And the the distinction between the signal and the noise, I think actually sets us back in understanding the world because it suggests that if you only understand three or four variables you know, in this neat and tidy model of how change happens, then you'll be fine. And, and I think the more you scrutinize case studies, the more those neat narratives just completely fall apart. Yes. Uh, and these little accidents, these little chance encounters, these little things that could have gone otherwise don't. And that's what produces the the, the outcome that everyone wants to replicate. So you know, I think my point here is not that we can change this, right? You can't, you can't always plan for the noise because, of course, there's, there's very, very noisy outcomes in life that we can't control. It's that accepting that makes you have a less hubristic outcome, uh, outlook rather on leadership and makes you make smarter decisions because you recognize certain things are out of your control and you don't try to simply shoehorn your behavior to fit some model that you think re- uh, produced success in the past, which may or may not be useful in the current moment.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at a piece of data, we try to foot it within a pattern that we believe to be true already. Because in clinical psychiatry, they tell you that humans like patterns. It forces them to think less. There's less brain power. Because if you find something totally new, you have to figure out what is the pattern behind it. So we don't like that. So I can see why that happens. But also this idea of case studies, you talked about case studies. When I look at a case study, my first question is who wrote the case study? What is their bias? And why are they writing this case study in the first place? But what often happens is we take things at face value without thinking it through because we're we're busy, right? We don't have time to be critical about everything that comes our way. So your your point that
1: you started with is extremely astute and important, which is that when you have data, it is stuff you collect because you think it matters already, right? Yes. And the, the this is one of the reasons why I, the opening story of the book. I'll just I, I know you've read it, but I'll just rehash it for you. Oh, it's your, a great story. I was going to get yeah, to that so, later.
0: Let's go to it now. Yeah.
1: So, so the opening story of the book, I think, illustrates this point really well, which is it's the story of a, a couple, uh, Mr. and Mrs. H.L. Stimson, who vacation in Kyoto in 1926, and they fall in love with the city. It's extremely beautiful and charming, and, and they just adore it. Now, 19 years later, it turns out the husband of this couple, Henry Stimson, is America's Secretary of War in 1945, and he's in charge of the targeting committee, which is choosing where to drop the atomic bomb. And his personal attachment to Kyoto is so strong that he twice sets up meetings with Harry Truman to get him to take Kyoto off the targeting list, even though all of the generals and other experts have put Kyoto as their top choice for where to drop the first atomic bomb. And so when you're trying to figure out why did the atomic bomb fall on Hiroshima, right? The first thing you would do if you didn't know about that story would, would would be to make a list of factors that you think would be important for bombing, right? Military prowess, you know, yes. civilian population, all the things that you think matter. But in that instance, literally the only thing that mattered, the only thing that produced the outcome that Kyoto was not destroyed was a vacation that happened 19 years earlier from a couple that you didn't know was necessarily going to be important. And they didn't know was going to be important when they chose that vacation destination. And so – This is a lesson, a parable for data collection that I think is so often lost on people is that You know, what we do when we collect data, and that's the invisible part, right? The the visible part is the analysis of data. So, so much about strategy and decision-making and business choices are like, how do we slice and dice the data? And the data just already exists in that world, right? It's like, oh, it was just like here in the ether waiting to be plucked out for us to analyze. No, data is created, right? And data is created by people who have biases about what they think is important for cause and effect relationships. If you were trying to figure out why why Kyoto was not bombed, how far down the list of variables would you put the vacation history of American government officials? I mean, ten millionth on the list. That. And so that's the kind of thing where, when you think about a story like that, it, it, it tells you that the data is is inevitably going to be flawed. It's a it's a sp- false snapshot of reality that is sometimes useful. I mean, I I love the quote that all models are wrong, but some are useful. But the important part about that that's, that's lost on people is, okay, but the first part of that, the all models are wrong is really, really important because it reminds us that modeling and data are not reality. And as soon as you keep reminding yourself of that, it instantly causes you to be more hesitant in making decisions, more thoughtful because you don't believe that the model is God, right? And I think that's the stuff that I look at the world right now. And I think, man, how many decisions are made with seriously flawed modeling, which may be the best way of trying to tackle a problem. But like, I've been in rooms where people are making decisions based on models and there's not that pushback. That's like, hold on, what are the things we don't know? What are the things we might not know? And and that's the kind of decision making that I think is 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 so so important to avoid catastrophe. Which, by the way, was my my grandfather's uh, life advice to me when I was a child, and I think it's very good for business leaders: avoid catastrophe at all costs. <laughs> at all costs. Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> From the story you were telling me, I also thought that you've given all of America's enemies a new wartime strategy: get the American Secretary of Defense to fall in love <laughs> with the capital city and never want to bomb it. I mean, that's a great strategy, there, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's this—the inadvertent uh, ripple effect of this book, which is very much in line. Is you know now you're going to have all these junkets going off to
0: show them the beauty of all various expensive are... for the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Come to our city; we'll pay for everything. You're going to stay as long as you want. <laughs> but you know, yeah, we're talking about it. But that's how things work, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the stuff where, like, what's funny about this book and researching it and talking to people when I was writing it was like, you know. I would start to say these things and they would sort of push back with the conventional wisdom about modeling and patterns and all this stuff. And I was like, but like, take anything in your life, right? Like take any story about how you ended up where you are. What do you end up focusing on? You focus on these little moments that could have gone differently, right? Like how you got the job because you, you know, this little thing happened or you were diverted Mm -hmm. in this way, or this is what caused you to meet your spouse or whatever. And so like all of us in our daily lives are totally on board with this worldview in which like we are, somewhat you know at the mercy of extremely complex dynamics that we can't control about eight billion interacting humans, not to mention you know the the extremely chance derived evolutionary history of our species and so on. And then we start to like talk about like our society and all that wisdom from our lived experience just flies out the window and it's like, oh yeah, no like everything is just like you know here's these six variables and we have a high confidence you know 95 uh, percent confidence interval, this is how the world works. And I I just, you know, I try, I try to say to people, like, just apply some of the logic about how you think about your own life and your own trajectory to how you think about forecasting. And you'll probably be A, less overconfident and B, make smarter decisions.
0: <laughs> and we, we should actually know this because if you look at our lived experience, if I look at the plans I had in my life, how many of them did I actually follow? Maybe just studying is the only plan that worked the way I set it out to work. But just about everything else was through random luck. Even what I ended up studying, people always ask me, why did you study genetics when you were at university? Because that's what I initially majored in. And the reality is I liked a girl in the class. I mean, that's the reality, right? It wasn't as if I had this desire to change the world of genetics and genetic engineering. But the thing is, sometimes we are not truthful to ourselves about why we do things.
1: Well, and sometimes we don't know. I mean, that's the other thing, right? I I definitely knew that I liked
0: that girl, don't worry. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Well that's true but you don't know whether she was the best fit for you right and that's the problem. So so that this is the true. kind of thing this is the kind of thing where I I often say to people like first off uh we often think we know what's best for us and that's very often not the case. There's so many examples. I mean fluke yes. is riddled with examples where like you know we've tried to optimize for something and it turns out to be something else and the example you gave with pharmaceuticals already uh before also reaffirms this. But you know the other thing that I like to point out, I, I have this story early on in the book, and you, you'll you'll know where I'm going with this in, in in a second. But it's very much related to this point of the unforeseen and the unknown, and so on. And uh, th- there's a story in the first chapter where I talk about this this woman uh, in 1905 in Wisconsin who has four young children and um, snaps, basically, yeah. probably postpartum depression is what we call it today, but in 1905 they didn't call it that and she she unfortunately murdered her four young kids and then and then uh took her own life and her husband comes home and discovers these bodies and it's a horrific horrific story now the reason i put this in the first chapter of of my book is because this was my uh, great grandfather's first wife and so you know he comes home and then ends up you know later remarrying and ends up yes. uh, marrying the woman who becomes my great grandmother and 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 that's the origin story of me in a quite literal sense right is is i i realized that if this mass murder didn't happen, I wouldn't exist. Now, the point that I don't (laughs) bang on too much about in in the text in the first chapter, but is is important, is I didn't know about this for the first 20 odd years of my life, right? So for the first 20 odd years of my life, I have no idea that I'm derived from a mass murder. And so the thing is like how much of the stuff about the narratives we tell about why change happens and so on are just fundamentally flawed because we have imperfect information, right? And like my sense of myself has shifted a little bit from that story, and it wasn't really up to me, right? I mean, I like I, I get I get this information and I find out, okay, you know, this is what happened, but it does make you think a little bit more, and maybe this is you know in some subconscious way the origin story of this book. But I, I just think to myself, you know, like if if my great grandfather had come home early and had you know talked to her and and stopped her or something like that. I'm deleted from history, that whole family lineage is deleted from history, okay. and we're not talking, you're not hearing my voice, right? So when you start thinking that way, and I think all of us, you know, hopefully in less macabre ways can, can pinpoint these moments, we tend to focus on the stuff we remember. So you remember the girl in the class, you remember the choice of college or undergrad where you went, all that stuff, it's the building blocks that we you know build our lives with. My point is that there are infinite numbers of things that are affecting your life that you're unaware of. And that is the, that's the thing that's really mind boggling because we look back on the what ifs, but we never can see the what ifs that we can't imagine. Right. And those are the things where, you know, you, you, maybe you nearly got hit by a car and you didn't realize that the person pulled up, you know, managed to wake up and just in the nick of time because you were oblivious to it. So maybe your life almost ended, but you have no idea about it. Right. That's the kind of stuff where, or your you know, maybe your future spouse or partner ends up, you know. Basically going left instead of right because uh, you know somebody was blocking their way and but for that you would never have met. But you're not aware of it. So I you know I think this is the kind of stuff where when you start to scrutinize the way reality actually works, it gives you an appreciation for that complexity. Which also is the number one antidote, in my view, to uh, (laughs) overconfident leadership and decision making in business. Because if that's the way the world is, then a lot of the stuff that you think that you're sort of cleverly strategizing and controlling starts to become that realm of contingent. And that's where you start to build in things like resilience into your planning a lot more as well.
0: well. That's a very good story. In business, I see this a lot. It's a common Achilles heel whereby we analyze what we think we can analyze because we think it's important. And let me give you an example, a very good example of this. I was working with an automotive company once, and they were talking to me about how important the Indian market is and the Chinese market, and they've done all these studies about market share growth and average incomes rising and birth rates and so on, and they've come to the conclusion that they must be in India and China. And the analysis is sound except for one thing, which all strategy ignores. So my question to them was, do you have an executive who can go into India, which is very fragmented, very fractured with different rules in different states and can find a way to get each part to work together. Because unless you have that person, it's just going to be an attractive market, but it's going to be an attractive market that you can do nothing about. And exactly what I predicted came true. They entered the Indian market and they're to withdraw seven years later because the executives couldn't get it together. And the point of the story is that, Again, they got so comfortable analyzing what they could analyze, what showed them something would work. And they left out the most important thing is, is there a personality that can realize the potential in the market? And even today, when you talk about business with people and leadership, they ignore that element. It's all about the person who's going to have to make the decisions and pull it all together. They completely leave that aside.
1: Yeah. So I, I I like this, um, analysis, the sort of the story of how, you know, they're analyzing everything to death, but then it ultimately fails. There, there's a a phrase, uh, the McNamara fallacy, which refers to the the U S yes. and the Vietnam war and how on paper, the U S was absolutely clobbering, uh, yes, the yes. enemy in the war. And in fact, everything was falling apart because the metrics they were using were all wrong. You know, one of the things I, I, I teach this class, um, Uh, On social research, and and one of the one of the examples I gave that seemed to break through to students this year was I said you know imagine that you're you're uh, I think I put this in fluke as well there there's this you know sort of imagine that you have this um, person who comes to you in like 1995 and says like we need you to forecast how much time you know an average person will use their phone in the year 2020 right yes and. The the problem is, you know, you start to think about how you come up with this. Well, the problem is we can't, until you realize that someone in 1995 would never think of a phone as something other than that, which you use to communicate with people via voice. You can't understand that the data analysis in 1995 would be impossibly flawed because they could never have anticipated. I mean, maybe there were some futurists who thought smartphones were coming in, in 1995, but the average person had absolutely no idea that we were going to use hours and hours of our day with phones to use things on the internet, which basically barely existed at the time, right? Yeah. And on top of that, the amount of time that you would forecast would have undercounted it because you didn't know there would be a global pandemic in 2020 where everyone's on their phone scrolling yes. rather than going to work, right? <laughs> so the, the the point is this is a, a realm of, of thought where, and I talk about this at LinkedIn one of the chapters in, in Fluke, but I'm 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 deriving this term from um the former governor of the Bank of England, Mervyn King, um, radical uncertainty. And what they call radical uncertainty is a world in which no past data can provide you any help in making a future decision. And so the example they use that I think is just brilliant, so I've I've incorporated into the book as well, is they talk about Barack Obama in the situation room trying to decide whether or not to give the green light to the organ, to the operation to kill Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And the problem is they don't know whether bin Laden is there for sure. They don't know what would happen if special forces go into Pakistan, an apparent ally of the U.S. that's got sovereign territory. They don't know whether the operation would succeed. If it did, they don't know if the house is booby-trapped. You you can analyze everything you want about, you know, the SEAL Team 6's past record or whatever. It will not tell you the information you need to know, which is, is Osama bin Laden there and is this raid going to succeed? And if it doesn't, is it going to destroy my presidency? All three of those things are radical uncertainty, right? So the, the point that they make there, and I think it's a very astute one, is that if you properly identify radical uncertainty, then you would not optimize. You, you would go in very hesitant. You would think you may not go in yes and you and you may not go in as well you might you might decide not to now on the flip side of this there are some realms and business has loads of these right where you actually really understand the system and it's pretty stable i mean the example i use for this is is like sports like sports is a realm where probabilistic reasoning with relatively high levels of certainty are warranted because you have a closed system with a fixed number of variables, the same teams year on year, the same rules. Yes, unexpected things happen, there are upsets and so on, but probabilistic reasoning is very well suited for sports games mm-hmm. because it just tends to converge towards a set of yes. outcomes over over time. I mean, it's much more akin to a coin flip. And so those rules. are the two extremes. Like the two extremes are on the one hand, the extremely predictable closed system that you should absolutely optimize the hell out of because you know and you can control it and you can understand it. You'll get some weird outcomes the same way that, you know, an unexpected team wins a championship and so on. But like broadly speaking, over the long run, optimization is very smart in that world. And the other extreme is radical uncertainty where literally nothing you do will tell you information that you need to know and you just have to make a decision. And, you know, the thing is, I think that businesses spend a lot, a lot more time on trying to model things than trying to figure out what kind of world they're inhabiting with a problem. Yes. And I think that's the step that's missing too often where it's like, is a model even useful? Like, could we actually model this? Is the is the past performance actually relevant to the current situation or has the world that we're inhabiting changed so much that that past data is no longer meaningful? Because what the SEAL Team 6 did in Somalia tells you nothing about whether the raid is going to succeed in Pakistan. And so that's the kind of identification strategy that I think is often uh, missing. And it's where you know, pollsters and pundits, I think, make serious mistakes because they simply think that the past is indicative of the present or the future. And that's very often a
0: flawed assumption to make. I like what you said. When you were talking about sports teams and football and so on, what I realized, because it's some form of thinking we're doing in, in developing a new strategy doctrine, is that in sports, the rules are well known there are clear rules and fairly contained outcomes. I mean, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose, there's going to be a draw. So in those situations where the rules are pretty clear, it's easier to optimize, I think. But in situations where the rules are not clear, like in warfare, you don't know how the other side is going to respond. Then you've created this old set of uncertainties out there. And most people, what they do is when faced with uncertainties, they apply models that they think is going to give them some certainty but it doesn't always work that way. A classic example of this is in strategy. We use focus interviews a lot to inform us in terms of what the opportunities may be at the client, what the problems may be, what employees and stakeholders are thinking. But the problem with focus interviews is that people don't often tell you what they're really thinking. So you go ahead and plan based on what these focus interviews tell you, but what's really happening is very, very different. You know, in my mind of thinking is that we need a way to observe what people are doing without asking them what they were doing. And the reason I'm bringing up this example is because we create these tools of analysis and we think it gives us some better view of what's happening. But in reality, it's just telling us what people want to tell us. And often it's not very helpful. So it's this idea of knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know. And I find all these tools we use work very well when the rules are fairly straightforward. But when the rules are unclear, it's how would an executive respond to that? What does your research tell you?
1: Yeah, so I think it's an important point about the aspect of what people say versus what they actually think. I mean, not only do they not say what they think, but they also don't necessarily know what the best strategy is for them, right? I mean, it's, yes. it's impossible to know. So I, there, there's layer upon layer of uncertainty there. And I think this is something where trying to figure out the actual underlying you know, behavior is, is certainly worthwhile. It's it's something that can't always be done, but it's certainly worthwhile. Now, when it comes to the rules point, I mean, I in, in Fluke, I talk about this with baseball, and it's not a universal analogy. But the reason I use baseball is because of Moneyball, which is that, that yes. famous um, book by Michael Lewis that turned into the film. And there's two lessons in Moneyball. one is that optimization actually really works for exactly the reasons you highlight, right like, like as you say, if you've got the New York Yankees playing the New York Mets, you know that the Minnesota Twins are not going to win the game. <laughs> like the rules are super, super clear in business that's not true right in business yes. you, you you don't just have like two players that can be an insurgent player or whatever. But the other point about this, and this is I think lost on the on, on the book because this didn't you know it hadn't happened yet, was the world moneyballed after The book came out. In other words, the 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 executives in the baseball uh, league basically did all of the lessons. They optimized, right? They came up with stats. They came up with benchmarks. They reached parity. Exactly. What they didn't anticipate, and this is a really important point, I think, for exactly what you're talking about, the with well known rules and so on. Even when you think you know the rules really well, what they didn't anticipate was that people watch baseball because they like be unexpected and they don't want to think that they're watching a series of spreadsheets playing each other on the field. And so when Moneyball became the norm, it actually tanked the viewership of the fan base of baseball. It was bad for a lot of the bottom line because- makes sense. People got bored. Because you, you got so good at optimizing that there were fewer home runs. There were more really boring outcomes, because boring outcomes are often the defensive strategy. It took the excitement out of the game that came out that was derived from human impulse and emotional, reckless decision making. So they didn't understand they were possibly optimizing for the wrong thing. You know, one of the ways to get money in the door is to win, but another way is to make the games exciting. And so what Major League Baseball did, and this is again a, a difference between the incentives of an individual firm, for example, versus a league was the league realized, okay, we need to fix this because every individual team has an optimization strategy that works for them because they win more, but we're killing the sport. <laughs> so yes. they basically changed the rules to make the game less easy to money ball. And that's been implemented in the last season. The last season had new rules set up to ensure that they couldn't do some of the things that the data said would be effective because it was so effective that it optimized for the wrong thing, which was excitement. (laughs) They lost the sense of excitement and that's what sports are all about.
0: Well, that's a good example. I love that example because that's an example of how you are not manipulating, but are you optimizing the rules within a game? There's also examples of where you optimize for rules that govern a game. I mean, we're seeing this now in the Barclays Premier League, soccer in the British Premiership title, whereby for a very long time, Manchester City, which was backed by a sovereign wealth fund from the Middle East had so much money that they dominated football. And it reached a point where nobody even would wonder who's going to win because Manchester City is going to win. But then when more money entered the league and other teams reached parity, it became competitive again. And now you're in a situation whereby you've got five teams that could win the premiership. And we haven't had that for maybe 10 years. So it's interesting how rules can change. As you say, you actually think you know the rules, but are you playing the rules effectively? That's the yeah, question, I, I, right?
1: That no, and that, and that's that's very very important to to keep in mind. I I I promise not to you know, sort of bang the uh, the sports drum too much, but I do like there's one other sports analogy I use that I think is is an interesting one, um, and it, it's it's from uh, some other people's work as well, some economists and so on. But there, there's another thing that they highlight, um, which is called the weak linked uh, problems and the strong link problems. And I think they're very, very important for business audiences to understand, but sports are the best way into them. So uh, a strong link problem is where all you need to worry about is your strongest link, the best part of your business, right? Yes. A weak link problem is where. If any part of your business is weak, you're screwed. And so, in the sports analogy, this is basketball versus rowing. So, basketball: if you've got LeBron James on your team, the you know the best basketball player in the league currently, possibly yes. of all time, uh, you can have a fifth guy on this on the court who's not very good, and it'll be fine <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because ultimately, <laughs> basketball is a sport where it, you know if you have a really really strong link, you can still win yes. games. Now, rowing is the exact opposite. It's a weak link problem because the balance of the boat being thrown off by one rower or the coxswain yes. steering badly, any of the people messing up ruins the boat, right? And I, I used to row and I can attest to this. If anyone's balance is even marginally off, the whole boat slows down because the whole thing operates on the, you're basically as good as your worst rower, right? And so you need to field eight eight people in you know an eight person per person boat plus the the coxswain, who actually can synchronize. And so the lesson here that I think is important for business is identifying which are which, right? Because if you've got a strong link problem, it doesn't matter if you have some sort of you know unoptimized chaff at the bottom. That's fine, yes. Because you're still going to be okay. If you have a weak link problem, you better do some, you know, serious serious quality control because any problem in your organization is going to derail the whole operation. And businesses are are mixtures of strong link and weak link problems, right? Yeah. So, uh you know, there's there's a lot, you know, I'm a sports fan, but it is it is one of the things that I think does teach us lessons um about how to think more critically about areas of social, you know, complexity um because they are these sort of you know like role playing of of the real world and society but with one key difference which which you you point out the rules are clearly defined and there's only a set number of out- outcomes there are infinite outcomes that can happen when we're doing business planning yes. and there are no the, the rules may exist in terms of legal regulation and so on but the rules change and also sometimes people break the rules <laughs> so yes. there's there's quite a lot of of complexity there that sports uh, normally
0: doesn't have to contend with well, I can clearly see it being applied to say operations, for example, because I've seen cases for clients where by one or two planes, or even a train being off schedule by just 10 minutes can throw the whole system out of kilter. And all trains are coming in late until it snowballs and you've got everything going off course. But on the other hand, you have other systems within operations where if one thing goes off, the system manages just fine. And that's an example of a weak link and a strong link problem. Is that a good example?
1: It's a very good example. And it brings us to uh, another idea that's important, which is why is it that sometimes a single train can derail everything, whereas another train might not have much of an impact? And this is where the perils of optimization come in. And it's where I drive, you know, fluke is a mixture of a lot of uh, evidence from the natural sciences as well okay. as social sciences. And this this is derived from physics. Um, there, there, there's a, a frame called um, self-organized criticality, but the most easy way of understanding it is, the, is, is known as the sand pile model. And the sand pile model is, is uh, created by a guy named Per Bach in 1987, a physicist, where he basically says, okay, like if you add a grain of sand to a pile over and over and over, eventually one grain of sand will cause the collapse, right? Yes. Now, the question is, you know, when you think about things like business and optimization, are you putting yourself in a position where the grain, where, the, where the sand pile is so tall and so at the limit that a single grain of sand falling the wrong way can cause a collapse, right? And I use this analogy for explaining how, how the sort of holy grails of optimization and efficiency have created systemic risk in a lot of social systems and businesses and finance and so on. Where you basically sort of have the hubris to believe that you understand how the system's operating. So let's take yes. the financial crisis, right? You've got like the subprime mortgage lenders who are who think, "Yeah, we can get away with this. It'll be fine." But what they've actually done is they've engineered a social sandpile that is teetering on the brink of collapse and no one knew that. And then, you know, the the sort of single grain of sand that is the the trigger for the financial collapse causes everything to fall apart. And so the the point here is that you may have a situation like with the trains you mentioned, where if you had more resilience, where you say, okay, let's design a system where if a train is 10 minutes late, we can operate okay. That is derived from a worldview in which you believe that you can't necessarily control the trains running on time all the time. Like yes. things, things are just gonna happen. And so, you know, there's there's a an instance of this I mentioned in Fluke, which is um a, a power grid in South America where they did decoupling basically, they they, they, they lost about, five, I think it was 5% efficiency, I could be slightly wrong on the number, but like the system was like 5% less, less efficient, but it was 5% less efficient because it meant that if any part of it failed, then they could shut down the rest of it without reducing, they, they, they could basically isolate it without reducing the power to the rest of the country, yes. right? And so this meant that by compartmentalization, they reduced efficiency, but when there was actually a, uh, I think it was an earthquake or something like that, that knocked out power, it only it had a very limited effect, right? Because they were able to, sh- to basically isolate it and shut it down, and, and have the resilience kick in. And so, this is the sort of point that I wish you know business leaders and policymakers would take. Uh, it's one of the, the key points that I, I hope people think about more. Is that if you have you know a, a sense of Contingent events destroying everything. And, and God, I mean, we've had, what have we had? We've had 9-11 upend yeah. every geopolitical forecast in 2001. Financial crisis follows six or seven years later that up, up, uh, you know upends every single economic forecast. You have the rise of populism and the election of Trump. Every political and IR forecast is wrong. And then you have a pandemic, right? <laughs> it's like we are constantly walloped by this stuff yes. that proves us wrong. And we haven't learned the lesson that we need to stop building the sand pile quite so high. Exactly. Um, that's, that, that's basically the point. And, and I, I think it's where physics has lots of lessons to teach us about how systems
0: operate um, and, and we'd be well to, to heed some of them. Ryan, I could speak to you at least for another hour, two hours, but unfortunately <laughs> I have another appointment. And this time I actually mean it when I say it's unfortunate to have another appointment. Because <laughs> it's a really fascinating discussion. It ties in very tightly with strategy thinking about how we try to control everything. We don't make any room for passion, serendipity, experimentation, randomness, and so on. So no, thank you for this. It was really an amazing conversation. I think it's a good way to start the year for our listeners. So thank you so much for this. And hopefully you, we can have you back on the show.
1: Yeah, I'd love that. know it was, it, was it was a phenomenal chat. And I'm so you asked excellent, excellent questions. So thank you for giving me the
0: opportunity to share a fluke with uh, your audience. Sounds very good. We'll be in touch and we'll probably arrange something later as well.
1: That sounds great. Have a great appointment, whatever it is. And uh, thanks very much for having me on the show. I really, I really, really
0: like talking to you. Take care, Brian. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. As we wrap up, today's podcast is sponsored by strategytraining.com. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, you can get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies as a free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And if you're looking to advance your career and need to update your resume, you can get a McKinsey and BCG winning resume template example as a free download at www.firmsconsulting.com forward slash resume PDF.